0: I am Joe Marcello, joined as always by my bandit brothers, Orrin Phillips. Hey, everybody. And Mike Farah. Howdy, howdy. We are the Dollar Bin Bandits, and this is the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast. So it is that time of week again. We've gone past Monday, Tuesday, and it is now Wednesday, comic book day, but we call it Dollar Bin Bandit Day. And today we are proud to bring to you an interview with another member of the comic book Mount Rushmore, if you will. Uh, we're bringing you our interview with a man that has worked for both comic book companies and been pivotal in co creating so many characters. Uh, we're talking about none other than Jerry Conway. Now, what I always find memorable about him is the crossover issue, the big tabloid size crossover between Spider Man and Superman. Uh, it's another one of those kind of holy grail type issues that, you know, comic book collectors try to buy. Um, it's out there. It's not unheard of. You can definitely get it. Um, it's going to cost you a pretty penny. Uh, but what I also remember about him is his eight long, eight years uh, run on Justice
1: League.
2: Yeah, and I'm sort of uh, take a, a weirder route with Mr. Conway. Uh, I love his work on Atari Force. Uh, I think it's a very underrated comic. And uh, I think he doesn't get asked a lot of questions about it. So I was glad I could... Uh, Find out his his thoughts on the process of uh, putting out that book.
1: And I'll go in the opposite direction and bring up probably his most famous, um, two of his most famous moments uh, while writing Spider-Man. First, the uh, death of Gwen Stacy, which was obviously a pivotal uh, moment in the development of that character. Uh, that character being (laughs) Spider-Man. It's the end of the development of Gwen Stacy herself. But um, the other one being the Punisher. Uh, He is a co-creator of that character that uh, came on like gangbusters. It's still around today, still causing controversy. Um, And, uh, you know, we have Jerry Conway to thank for all that um, interesting and, um, you know, sort of tumultuous story that uh, came out of uh, our friend Frank Castle. So, Without further ado, let's
2: get to it. This is Jerry Conway. Tonight is a very incredible night for us. We have one of the greatest comic writers of all time. Uh, Mr. Jerry Conway is with us, sir. This is a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure, too.
2: Uh, you've done so much in your career. It's it's unbelievable. And so we just want to sort of jump to different uh, segments of your career, if that works for you. Sure. Great. Um, so let's we'll talk a little bit about spider-man but before we get into that i'm always curious with someone like yourself what is your definition of a superhero what makes a superhero
3: well i mean the the obvious uh aspect of it is uh, someone with powers but uh, you have characters like uh, uh bruce wayne uh dick grayson uh, uh you know over at marvel you have uh, tony stark uh, these are people who are, who are not actually uh, super powered, but I guess what, what, what we think of in terms of superhero is, is someone who is a hero, but goes beyond, you know, the, uh, the standard definition of a hero in, in real life, uh, more of a wish fulfillment figure, uh, if anything.
2: Did that idea for you change at all through the years as you worked on oh, comics? Sure.
3: I, did. sure. I mean, uh yeah you know, I started out when I was a teenager, so uh, my uh, my experience in life and my uh, uh, just my general understanding of human nature, you know, was was fairly limited. Right. Yeah. Uh, and my appreciation for the complexities of life, you know, were were uh, limited. Um uh, so as I've, as I've grown and I've, uh, uh, matured over the years, you know, that, 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 uh, understanding of, uh, what makes for a hero is, has also grown and changed. Uh, you know, in the, in the old days, uh, a hero is anybody who could beat up a bad guy. Uh, <laughs> these days, sometimes a hero is someone who chooses not to beat up a bad guy. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, there's a moral complexity to a story that, uh, or to a character, uh, and to the, the quandaries that they face that, you know, require more substantial uh, engagement than just a fist. <laughs> right. Exactly.
2: Now, when you get into Spider-Man, you, you had some books under your belt. You, you've been working for a few years. Um, were you confident going into Spider-Man that this is something that you could do, or did you still have some reservations that?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, uh... I had reservations, but, you know, the, the arrogance of ignorance and youth <laughs> <laughs> was a, was a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a sure winner for me. Um, yeah, you know, I was 19 years old. Uh, and by that point, I'd been writing comics for about three years, uh, three and a half years. So I, I felt like I had a substantial body of work. And I kind of did, you know, c- uh, compared to, you know, what, what uh, anyone has, you know, these days. Um, but I was still flying by the seat of my pants and, and fairly ignorant, you know, about what my capabilities were and, and how to apply them. Um, but the arrogance helped, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd always, I'd always managed to land on my feet on any project that I'd worked on. And in some cases I was very happy with some of the work I did and, and, and what, when when the work didn't go well, I um, you know I learned from it and, and expected to continue to learn from it. Right. One one of the things that Roy Thomas uh, taught me or told me, uh, you know, at the time, is that uh, we're, we're doing monthly books. I mean, we were at this point doing monthly books, and you could only make those books as good as you as was possible in the time that you had to do them. But hopefully, the next issue would be better. Uh, so if you failed with one issue to, to accomplish your best work, you know, you had another shot next month. And that that really helped put it in perspective for me.
2: Now, because Spider-Man was such a, a flagship book, was, was there any pressure on you to keep within the same sort of writing tone as previous writers? Or were you given the freedom to have your own voice in this book spoken sort of take direction that well, you wanted to?
3: We all I think anybody who worked for Marvel at that time was trying to emulate Stan to some degree or another. And in beyond emulation, you know, he was really, for me, uh, uh, one of the two inspirational figures uh, from my childhood as, as a in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he and Gardner Fox were the two writers who I most admired. Uh, and as a result, you know, I wanted to write Light <laughs> Stand. Now, as, as it turned out, you know, I had my own voice too. And there were, there were uh, spending a couple of years writing for DC, I had developed, you know, a certain style and a certain approach to uh, uh, to creating mood and to, to narrative that uh, was different from what was prevalent at Marvel. Uh, so when I worked on the book, you know, I tr- I was trying to write it uh, in Stan Lee's voice, but I was also uh, writing it, you know, with, with my own sensibilities in mind. Uh, and, it, and most of this was not necessarily conscious. <laughs> most of it, because as I say, I was 19 years old and whatever prodigy I might have been, I was also still fairly unformed and uh, unsophisticated in my uh, uh, my use of technique. Mm -hmm.
2: What do you think it was about Stan's voice that resonated with so many readers?
3: Well, there was a there was there were a number of things. I mean, one, I think, was it's uh, it's emotional heft, you know, that the characters uh, that Stan wrote clearly were passionate uh, and and an emotional beings, Mm -hmm. which was not true with the with the D.C., Characters, um, people like Denny O'Neill and Steve Skates were coming along, and you know, uh, bringing in that kind of emotional weight for for DC. Um, but it was not part of their house approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, DC sort of, as did many of the comic book companies, other than DC, you know, had this this the same notion that you were writing for children, mm-hmm. and as writing for children, you were, you were trying to write safe stories, you know, uh, which, which meant that the conflict had to be fairly simple and, uh, um, uncomplicated, you know, it was, it was not, not to be, uh, it was not to really challenge them emotionally. Hmm. Stan allowed us to feel that challenge. You know, I mean, uh, characters like Ben Grimm, Peter Parker, um, you know, uh, Thor to a lesser degree. Um, these are these were emotional characters that that were Ed, Bruce Banner uh, mm-hmm. that were dealing with with uh, existential <laughs> emotional issues. Right. And Stan made it made that plain uh, in his writing. But at the same time, he made it friendly. You right. know, there was this this the sense of camaraderie between the uh, creators and the readers. There was this this really interesting uh, uh, collaborative uh, emotional sense where you weren't just invited to read and enjoy the story. You were basically invited to participate in the Marvel Universe. You know, you you were part of it. You were one of the, the faithful, the faithful ones, you know, the true believers. Uh, the, uh, the 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 members of the Marvel Marching Society. There was a there was a sense of, of collaboration that I think we don't see as much, you know, today in comics, uh, you know, and, and and that's to be understand understanding uh, uh, because we're we're in a time frame now where uh, corporations run things, but but also these characters and these these books are all. Such highly valued uh, intellectual property, there's there is really no way that that you can have this sense of participation that you used to have. Um, you know, r- writing a letter today uh, really has no effect. <laughs> it has no effect. <laughs> Fan mail and even tweets—they uh, they may sort of have a response, you know, in a in a generalized sense. But you know, there was a feeling back in the day, uh, in the '60s, I think, at, at both companies. I mean, we we're, we're with Marvel uh, more so than DC, but even at DC with people like Julie Schwartz and uh, Mort Weisinger, that you had a chance to like contribute something mm-hmm. in your in in what you were writing to to the editor. Uh, if you made a suggestion, the editor might say, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, and, and maybe that might show up in some way yeah. where they would respond to it. They took, pen, they took notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was probably mostly because there were such, there were so few books being published and, uh, the people involved were very involved and there was a small crew yes. uh, at, at all the companies. I mean, it's hard to imagine now. I read the the the, the uh, credits pages on on comics today, and you have group edit, You have editors in chief, group editors, editors, and assistant editors, and associate editors. And I, I mean, Julie Schwartz ran five six books a month out of his own office. <laughs> Stan edited the entire Marvel line. With one assistant, I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, you know, there's a reason that all this stuff gets 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 overly complex now and, and contradictory. Yeah,
2: somebody cooks uh, in the kitchen.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you have four four or five different layers of editorial in, input and one creator, one writer, and one artist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, who's going to have the most most influence on the story? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah.
2: I want to jump back to something you were talking about with DC. And I'm curious because your writing is so distinct. Did you feel any frustration at all early in DC when, like you said, not the books were, were had a sort of formula to them, but they, like you said, there was not a lot of emotion. It was the bad guy did this. They came up with a plan to stop them. They stopped them. Mm-hmm. Next book.
3: Well, I, well, when I was first, when I first worked for DC, I was mostly writing for the, uh, supernatural titles yeah. uh, I actually wrote a few uh, romance stories too one summer I did I did a romance story a week for a summer for uh, for Dick Giordano uh on on uh the two book uh, two romance books that he edited which is weird you know having a 16 year old boy writing romance comics for girls <laughs> <laughs> um, but the only character book that I worked on uh very briefly was was Phantom Stranger Uh, I did two stories for Phantom Stranger for DC and those were, I I was given the support, you know, by, by Joe Orlando. And, uh, and and I think the approach of the book was to be uh, an emotional book. Uh, You know, it was a a supernatural book, but it had uh, character based stories. Mm -hmm. Um, So most of the work that I had done for DC was, were, were uh, short stories. Character-based, you know, there there were twisty stories, you know, in the it was the um, uh, Twilight Zone type uh, twist twist ending, mm-hmm. but they were character-based twisty stories, uh, supernatural stories. And when I went to, to to Marvel, it was a natural fit for me. Right. Um, there was some at, at the time there was uh, I, I was beginning to make something of a name for myself uh, as a writer at DC. Uh, um, in fandom, you know, and at that point, DC was considered the uh, the going thing in in terms of uh, fandom for for people like Denny working on Batman and and Green Lantern, Green Arrow, um, Steve Skates on Aquaman. Uh, you know, there was some real there was a real sense that that people at DC were were trying new things you know and, and uh, that's where that's where the creativity was right. and when i went to marvel uh, a couple of uh fan writers you know were saying oh Jerry is sold out you know he's he's sold out to the to the uh to the, <laughs> to the, the opposition i was like no no i wanted to work for these people because this was the kind of stuff i wanted to write and it wasn't a sellout if anything working for dc <laughs> had been my second choice uh i mean I, I truly uh, was grateful for the work of DC and, and and had a lot of time fun doing it. But, you know, writing for Marvel was what I had dreamed of since I was 10 years old. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, happened with Spider-Man is that you were part of the death of Gwen Stacy. I know you've heard a lot of questions about this, but I think in the way comics have changed a bit, it's such a refreshing thing that when Gwen Stacy died, it was a very sad realistic but dignified death it was a moment it was that's that's swick and that told the whole story there wasn't explosions and gunfire and long right. speeches and why did you think it was so important to keep it so simple for that this is what happened that it doesn't need to be such grandioseness
3: well i wish that i i wish that i could say i had a master plan uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but i was uh, I. I Coming into that story, that was a that was a premise, uh, killing off a supporting character was a premise that uh, John Ramita, my uh, uh, previous collaborator, had uh, wanted to pursue, uh, feeling that that was a way to uh, make readers feel that, yes, you know, there are consequences in these in these stories. Right. Uh, and, and there was debate about which character w- would be that it would be the victim. Um and ultimately, you know, I, I, my my notion of of it being Gwen Stacy was what prevailed, and I had I had felt, and I still feel, you know, that when you when a character dies, it should it should have you know emotional consequence that feels really significant um, and has a ripple effect. Prior to that, I had done a story for Submariner. In which uh, Submariner's father dies, um, and I had continued to, for a couple of issues after that to have <laughs> Submariner Namor, uh, you know, dealing with the aftermath, you know, of uh, his father's death and being kind of bleak and gloomy and grim. And Stan's a, a reaction at some point was why why is he you know brooding around so much over, over this? you know I mean we should be moving on, you know I said, no, you know I mean to me, no, 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 you know, this is his father. Right. <laughs> you know this is like a huge thing in his life. Uh, and then I think is where that where I diverged from Stan in terms of my thinking about things because Stan, you know as it as probably is a more practical and uh, uh experienced writer, felt that uh readers would get tired mm-hmm. you know of hearing the same note right. uh, but i didn't you know i mean I, I as a reader you know and as a writer i i my my comfort zone is getting down into the into the severe emotional reaction uh, and when i write a character and something terrible happens to them that has to stick <laughs> you know now in terms of how how she died and and, and uh, how, what you as you called it, a dignified death. Um, that's just how it worked out, you know. I, I as I say, I had no plan for it, mm-hmm. but I did know that you know the that that Peter's journey from that point on was going to be one of dealing with grief and accepting responsibility, yes. um, and coming to terms. You know, this is what when, when you talked earlier about what's what was what is a superhero. Uh, a hero is somebody who doesn't always succeed, right. but always keeps going back into battle. And Peter, up to that point, had never truly failed. Mm-hmm. You know, He had never truly failed at his mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd always managed to pull it out at the last minute. And whatever anxiety or, or, or uh, uh, dismay he felt, It was because people didn't appreciate what he was doing, you know, but this was true. This was a true moment of how do you deal with possibly the biggest failure you ever have in your life, which is, you know, failing to save the person you love. And that has to have consequences that play out over time. So
2: I think what you're saying is really so important and ahead of its time talking about Submariner and and Spider-Man, because you know, today we focus so much now, thankfully, on mental health and grieving and being it's OK to be sad when something mm-hmm. like this happens that you just don't bounce back and say, like, well, that, no. that. you, you got to, you know, it's to let people know, hey, if something happens to you and it affects
3: you, let your emotions. It is what it is. Yeah. And it's going and it is going to affect you. I mean, <laughs> one of the ways that and again, this is not again, I can't take a lot of credit for this. Uh, From a uh, an intellectual planning point of view, but, you know, going by the instincts that I had as a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, For example, one of the ways that uh, uh, I wanted to bring uh, the Green Goblin back Mm -hmm. was by through Harry. But how do you make that work? Well, you make it work by having him have uh, his own. post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, I mean, we didn't call it that, you know, back then, Um, but, but we, but, you know, I had done, I I had, I had myself done psychedelic drugs Mm -hmm. and uh, I had had the, 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 the the problem of having flashbacks Uh, like weeks and months later, you know, suddenly I'd be, I'd be out there and and, you know, it, it was, it was, it was scary. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, you know, back, uh, we, we were never really sure what it was that Harry had done, you know, what drug Harry had done. Right. But I kind of figured it was psychedelics because of the, the particularly lunatic way that he was behaving. So I figured, well, maybe, uh, you know, Harry's had uh, is having effects from this. And that's always been my approach is that when you look at a character years later and you're trying to come up with a, with something that uh, motivates them in a story. Look back, it's it's what's happened to them. And just like in our own lives, things that happened to us in the past, uh, you know, can bring their own repercussions today. uh, That would be, you know, what would motivate a character uh, in the future, in a story that I'd be writing about a character who's had some crap happen to them in the past. Right.
2: And I think a perfect example is another one that you've probably talked to to death about, but it's The Punisher. It's somebody who had a a very traumatic, like you said, PTSD, something awful happened, and it jaded them and turned them dark. I'm so curious, if you debuted The Punisher five years earlier, let's say in the late 60s, do you think fans would have connected with him as they did in the the mid-70s?
3: Well, it's interesting. I don't think we would have Created a character like the Punisher in the, in the mid 60s. Yeah. Because uh, that was a pre cynical age. You know, 65, uh, 66, uh, that was, I mean, it, it, if you look at the Marvel books in particular, uh, that was a very optimistic period for right. for those characters. I mean, that, there was a certain, you know, there was always a dark <laughs> undertone to some of these stories, mm-hmm. but most of their pain was self inflicted. You know, they do something stupid. Right. Um, But by the early 70s, we're now in a historical period where society is questioning everything. Uh, All of our our previously accepted uh, uh, rules of behavior and uh, lines of authority are breaking down. And the idea of of this battle of the individual against uh, the social order was really coming to the fore. I mean, we had characters uh, like Dirty Harry. Uh, I think uh, this was also the time of uh, Death Wish. Uh, death Death Wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had vigilantes, uh, subway vigilantes. Uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Uh, it's been so long. I, I'm not clear entirely on uh, the sequence of events, but. There was a general malaise and a general feeling of, of uh disassociation from the social order. So so that is what the Punisher spoke to. Right. Uh and and even more so in the eighties when it was revived mm-hmm. uh with uh, the uh, uh the, the series uh by Steve Grant and uh uh, uh Mike Zek. So it, there was this this I think I think a uh, an opportunity for a character like that, mm-hmm. you know, with all of our disillusioned Vietnam vets, you know, with with the general uh, disillusionment with with uh, uh, government through the, the, the Nixon, you know, and, and uh, Watergate, uh, we were ready to, to have a, a, a uh, uh, an anti hero like Frank Castle come along. Mm-hmm
2: how what were your thoughts at this time period, just personally of these films coming out in this like you said not trusting in this the vigilante and you know the anti-hero when this is coming to becoming more and more popular do you were you understanding why this was happening or were you saying whoa folks why why are we doing this
3: well i i i was a product of my time you know so for me uh You know, I've always I've always been a a leftist progressive type of person, uh, more touchy feely than uh, than uh, uh, authoritarian. uh. Mm -hmm. And so I found characters like Dirty Harry, uh, the executioner, uh, um, you know, Death Wish while they were they were. Certainly had an appeal, you know, for the, in the notion of, you know, this will go up against society uh, to, to the collapsing society. You need the, you need the man on the white horse. Mm-hmm. It was also kind of unsettling to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I was a, I, I, I was against the Vietnam War. I was against, you know, uh, police in the streets, you know, the, the kids being beaten up by cops at the, the Democratic Convention. Uh, I disliked authority in general. <laughs> I've never been very good with authority. <laughs> um, you know, to quote Woody Allen from uh, Annie Hall, you know, uh, I have a problem with authority. Um, so a guy like Frank Hassel, I admired his code, you know, which was uh, uh, he, he was. A guy who was not going to harm innocents, was not going to, uh, 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 you know, defy uh, the police per se. Uh, But he didn't feel that the world was sufficiently under control (laughs) that, that, that it needed somebody like him. I didn't agree with him. You know, I mean, he was written to be a bad guy. Yeah. But a bad guy with just like Dr. Doom, you know, a bad guy with with a reason, right. you know, uh, and, and you might disagree with him. You might uh, 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 just uh, not trust him, but you knew that he was trying to do what he thought was right. right, um, And that I just disagreed with it, you know, but uh, and and so did Spidey. Right. <laughs> you know, we, neither one of them saw him as, as neither of us saw him as a good guy. Um, so when he came back in the 80s and was treated more as, as a noble anti-hero, that, 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 that felt a little weird to me. But, you know, I was happy to ride uh, on, on the coattails of it, you know, even though I hadn't written the character uh, for six or seven years, you know, by that point. Right. And, uh, I, ha- I, you know, I've done a couple of stories with the character over the years, but, you know, my take on it is always... I think a little more self-critical in certain ways than uh, than some people's, but that's not to say that their their take is uh, uh, not valid. I mean, it is valid,
2: right? I think it's it's so uh, incredible that you know to, to create a character, but it's a character you don't like personally. It is nobody <laughs> you want to be associated with?
3: And well, I won't say that I don't like him. I don't like what he stands for. You know, <laughs> you know I exactly. like him. I think Frank Castle is is. I, he's he's an admirable guy in his own way, right. but what he's but what he stands for and certainly what, what what's been accreted to him over the years is not good, you know. Uh, and in that sense, you know. I mean you don't want a Frank Castle in society. Yeah. Uh but if you've got a Frank Castle, he's probably as good as you're going to get. Right. <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs> so. That's a good point.
1: I think that picks up probably uh I was going to jump into um or maybe jump back to the mid seventies. I think that's where Punisher came in as well, but um, you were asked to do a amazing, I would say unprecedented uh, crossover uh, between Marvel and DC, which was the uh, Superman meeting Spider-Man. I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, how that came about. If you even sort of know the machinations behind the scene and and then um, you know, how thrilled you were to be chosen to, to sure. write that tale.
3: Well, uh, it came about in an interesting way through a fellow named David Ost, who was a uh, literary agent. Uh, he was the literary agent for Woodward and Bernstein for All the President's Men. Oh, really? uh, and, and he approached Stan to be Stan's agent, uh, or Stan approached him to be his agent, something like that. But he was Stan's agent for a while uh for uh the various books you know that stan wanted to do outside of marvel for uh uh quote legitimate publishers and in the course of one of their conversations Oates, who is a comic book fan uh asked him you know why why has there never been a team-up between uh superman and spider-man you know between marvel and dc and stan you know made the usual Uh, observations that the two companies hated each other, (laughs) that they were rivals and competitors, and that there would really be no way that this could ever uh, uh, come about. And Obst said, well, you know, would you, would it be okay with you if I I tried uh, to do this? Uh, Stan was the publisher at that time, so Stan was able to give his permission for uh, Obst, you know, says, yeah, sure, if if you can get DC to agree, you know, I'll agree, you know, uh, just in, in that sort of Cavalier manner that because he didn't think it would ever happen, um, and then opes approached uh, Carmine, who, like Stan, was impressed by the fact that this was Woodward and Bernstein's agent, and uh, Opst was a very good agent, uh, and he managed to cobble together the deal. And the deal was that uh, Marvel and DC would collaborate on a, on several of these uh, tabloid uh, sized books. You know, I think the first one was uh, a Wizard of Oz book, uh, I I, I believe. I I believe that was a collaboration, Uh, although it really didn't act as a collaboration. Um, And under the terms of the agreement, DC would provide uh, the writer and Marvel would provide the artist and the editorial uh, oversight would be uh, between Stan and Carmine, uh, as uh, like the editors of the book. Uh, as it turned out, Carmine, I had just come to, to DC from uh, Marvel, and Carmine uh, saw me as like this, uh, you know, one of his new hot properties. So he put me on the book. Um, and I convinced uh, him that we should ask for Ross Andrew uh, because for the logical reason that Ross was one of the very few artists who had drawn both Spider-Man and Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, and besides which he was my favorite collaborator working on Spider-Man. Um, uh, and as a result, as, as it turned out, I think Marvel, um, uh, DC provided the production, uh, facilities for the book, uh, Marvel was supposed to, as I say, was supposed to provide the artists and I think some editorial supervision. I asked for Roy Thomas to be, you know, our collaborator as the editor. Uh, And so he came in as a kind of consultant on the book. And Stan and Carmine, neither one of them wanted to go anywhere near it. So in effect, I was the editor (laughs) of the book. And with Roy's... uh, 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 Two cents being thrown in now and again. Basically, Roy and uh, Ross and I uh, produced and uh, the entire book ourselves in a collaboration, and that's wow, that's, that's the whole story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so there we wasn't it. Uh, it was uh, the agent uh, seemed editor. to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. agent seemed to play a big role here. Uh, oh yes,
3: yeah, yeah. He ma- he made it possible, and and that deal you know carried on for s- several more stories uh until Jim Shooter blew it up uh for whatever reason he had uh and uh it was i think fairly successful for both companies you know i mean it was a good way for both companies to pro- promote their books uh to the other company uh you know to the fans of the other other companies uh uh titles uh and it was good for the business in general you know i mean it, it came at a, a, a pretty tough time for the for the comic book business where there wasn't a lot of um, movement happening. There were sales were sinking. Uh, they were trying to find all different kinds of ways to uh, make money on books. And this, it, it was a fairly high profile project, you know, and it led to other things like the Superman Muhammad Ali team up, the Batman Hulk story, right. uh, you know, the second Spider-Man Superman team uh, up. Uh, You know, it was, a, I think, a fairly reasonable commercial project, you know, and it was fanboy fun for me. (laughs) (laughs) Had to be. It's interesting that you you bring up
1: the sort of commercial um, situation because... I think we were talking to someone else. Uh, I don't know if you remember, even realize that there was a big intercompany crossover in the, I think the late nineties where they did four issues of Marvel versus DC. And he said, basically the market conditions were just as you're describing. I mean, things had fallen off the cliff, cliff from the um, speculator market and they're looking for something to do sales. And they're like, look across, you know, across Mm -hmm. New York city and team up with their rivals.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and it makes sense. You know, I mean, it, it's a, it's a really good idea. I would actually love to see, you know, probably in about 10 years, you know, of, of the MCU, when things start to like trend downward, I guarantee there will be a, you know, a, a Batman, Spider-Man, you know, or, or, or uh, whoever, well, it probably won't be Spider-Man because that's Sony, but, You know, there might be a Batman uh, MCU team team up because those would be the most popular characters, uh, you know, most popular character from DC. Um, But yeah, I mean, it, it always makes sense to do this kind of thing at some point.
1: And you also did a couple other, um, well, I guess that was the inaugural, uh, format change right into these big tabloid, uh, editions. size additions. And I think you did also some inter DC ones like Superman mm-hmm. versus Wonder Woman and versus Shazam. Superman,
3: yeah, I did two, I think two more. And I think we were, I, I was planning to do a big, uh, tabloid edition, uh, adaptation of, uh, La Mort d'Arthur, uh, the, uh, King mm-hmm. Arthur story. Oh, okay. um, and there were a couple of other big tabloid editions that we were planning but uh th- that that market I, I, I think it sort of peaked with you know the i think i think the superman spider-man book was the best-selling book of the bunch mm-hmm. and then the muhammad ali book did pretty well and then you know it was a kind of slow declining uh mm. uh, uh product and and honestly, it was a probably not a uh, an easy product for them to 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 get on the stands. You know, by that point, we were starting to transition into the direct sale market, and uh, it, it was an awkward format. Hmm. Did you like it from a creative perspective? Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, to do these big stories and to have that big canvas. Uh, I mean, these were these were ec- the size of three issues you know uh, at once you know it's 60 plus pages or more um, and uh you had these these panoramic uh uh visuals that you could you really couldn't do in in your, your regular monthly books um, right. one frustrating thing and, and and they also were without ads which from a writer's and and artist point of view i'm sure uh is one of the biggest problems with floppies for me uh i i don't know if this is your experience but whenever i open up a comic book it always opens to the ads yeah. <laughs> i can't see you know and then you're you're reading it and and you turn it you know you you see some spectacular uh uh two-page spread and the next thing you turn is to some some house ad or some <laughs> junk that you don't really care about you know and then yeah. you turn another page it's why I basically don't watch, uh, well, I stopped watching network TV maybe a decade ago because I can't stand being interrupted by ads yeah. and uh, the, the tabloid books had no ads. So it was great.
1: Yeah. yeah I think they designed it that way such that you yes. open it up and that's where the ad is because it's full money.
3: Right there. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it is annoying, and I, I agree. I did the same thing with commercial TV. This The format, I just I don't want to belabor the point, but it seems the way you're describing it really kind of like the IMAX version of a it regular fits. movie, right? It's it really just works, oversized, yeah. in your face. Um, uh, but yeah. just like I, IMAX in some ways, you know, a, a little bit of the shine is off when you've had that many adaptations. Yes. So I can understand why it sort of... Um, went away <laughs> yeah. eventually. Orin, you had uh
2: next yeah, one? I, we, we talked about so many big projects you worked on, and I have a question about a smaller thing, and that is your time with Atlas and the book you did with Skywall. Is there, <laughs> yes. These are books that somehow, this, those two and Charlton fascinate me just because yeah. uh, you know they're, they're short lifespan. But what was your experience with uh, those two companies like?
3: Well, uh, with... Uh, let's, hmm, how can I approach this? Uh, (laughs) well, you never want to, I didn't want to be just, uh, considered, you know, a, a, a house writer, you know, for, for any company, uh, until I had my first exclusive, uh, contract with DC, uh, I always saw myself as a freelancer, you know, willing to, to write for anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, had a fondness for the kinds of stories, the little supernatural stories that uh, I've been writing for DC for a couple of years before I started working for Marvel. And there was really no no place for me to do that at Marvel. Uh, once we uh, stopped doing uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the science fiction, uh, tales of the unknown or whatever it was that we had at one point. Uh, so I wanted to keep, keep my hand in with that. I actually did some stories for Warren. Uh, I did some stories for Skywald. um and f- doing it for Warren was purely a label of labor of love because he paid like uh, what amounted to like $2 uh, or $3 a page <laughs> for a script at a time when I was making 15 or $16 a page for, 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 uh, for at Marvel. uh But I just loved that, that, Format and I, I also loved the idea of having some stories of mine in creepy and eerie, which were books that I had I had admired as a kid uh, when they first came out. So Skywald was an opportunity, yes, yet again to do some you know hokey little stories like that. Mm. When it came to Atlas, Atlas was basically uh, it came up during a time when I was feeling frustrated with with Marvel um and i wanted to to uh poke marvel in the eye a bit um and also uh, it was an opportunity to work with steve ditko uh and you don't pass up an opportunity to work with steve ditko even if it is on a thing called tiger man yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, but it was fun you know i mean to to, to write something that ditko was going to uh, to draw the previous thing that i had done was a uh, man bat uh during my brief tenure as an editor at, uh, DC pr- uh, a few years earlier. Uh, so the, op- the opportunity to, to do this again, you know, was, was fun. Um, but yeah, you know, it was also, I, everybody knew it was doomed. I mean, it, 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 this, this Atlas had, had the, the stench of death <laughs> <laughs> just because Chip Goodman was, was a known, uh, a known commodity at Marvel. And, you know, he was, he was doing it to prove a point that he should have been made the publisher of Marvel. Uh, and it was basically a, a, a vengeance thing, you know, that he and his, his father financed, uh, you know, to, to, to give him a chance to uh, to show that he could have done it. Um, and he was paying Ridiculous rates, you know, to get Marvel people to come work for him, mm-hmm. uh, and nobody thought it was going to go anywhere. But you know, it was, said sure, you know, why not? And you got to work with Steve Ditko. I got to work with Steve Ditko, which was awesome. <laughs> was it
2: was it cool? I mean, was it a really cool? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. awesome.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd only met Steve once, uh, you know, working on the Man Bat story. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I mean, his I, I, obviously for him it was just a, a paying job, um, and uh, it was still fun though to to see that great figure work and those 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 fun weird uh, uh, fight scenes that only he could do.
2: So <laughs> well, it was great. I'm seeing more and more now though on you know these Facebook groups I'm in for the comic collectors that a lot more people are discovering Atlas Comics now. That it's sort of becoming. Mm-hmm kind of cool like a thing yeah yeah, yeah because you look well, at the talent roster that was on these books these were not no
3: names i mean these well, were it's true you know you it's had Larry I mean, and stuff like that yeah um i mean there's a there are a, a lot of books that, that should be rediscovered you know uh I mean, you, there's a whole line of harvey comics uh, from the 60s um acg you know uh american comics group uh i mean they're they're, they're not. They're weird, you know. The way I described—I I was talking about Charlton on on Twitter the other day, and I said, you know, Charlton, Charlton, Charlton superheroes were sort of like the toys that your the the, the uh, off-brand toys that your grandparents got for you when you you wanted the the ones that you saw on TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like they were like why why don't you like them they're still (laughs) superheroes you know but they're fun you know it's like uh i remember when um uh the tower comics came out those those wonderful wally wood books um those were they were surreal i mean to see these big comics uh 25 cent comics without ads um you know, with these fantastic artists on them, uh, you know, doing work that uh, they couldn't do on the other books, you know, on the, on the mainstream books, that was great, you know, so more power. And, and the great thing about co- companies like ACG was that their stuff was so weird that it, 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 it it's almost inspirational. You know, you, you you look at some of that stuff and you go, yeah, they're, you could take that in a whole new direction. Somebody should definitely do a new Nemesis comic. You know, I mean, somebody should definitely uh, find some of this old stuff and 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 get the rights to it and do, do some new books. Uh,
2: I think it's awesome you say that because I was telling some friends the other day. I have the Dell version of Dracula, Frankenstein, and Werewolf, but they have Dracula as a superhero and Frankenstein is always oh, so weird. <laughs> and you know, you read it and you're like, oh, it's not the best written thing, but I'm like, creative, creatively. This is brilliant. Like, who would think that makes Frankenstein like a
3: spy? You know, well, it's so. And and years later, you know, what do they do at, at DC? They do they do their own Monster Squad books, right? You know, so mm-hmm. it's it's it just was ahead of its time. And one of the great things right now with all these independent uh, uh, companies, you know, where where people can create their own their own stuff, is that uh, we're we're seeing weird crap again right. you know and for <laughs> for a long time in the 70s 80s and 90s um you know it was all fairly bland and standard uh, i mean good stuff you know a lot of good stuff but you only had two major companies and the occasional independent company so there was no real opportunity to to go off and create something truly strange right. uh not until dark horse came along really uh, you know, in the whole uh, uh, Hellboy universe, you know, that got started out of that. Right. So I'm glad to see it, you know, with all these startup companies now, you know.
2: And one book you worked on that I, it took me a while to get to them. And now I sing the praise of them. That's Atari Force. Oh, now, Atari Force. Now, the first version I remember getting inside the, the games and I was yes. like, okay, it's kind of a, a commercial for Atari. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure for you, you know, Atari was telling you, "We want certain yeah. things." There's a, well, we,
3: they wanted something gentle and 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 not too controversial and not too creative, right? You know, we, which is what we gave them. <laughs> but but some really great Ross Andrew artwork. So you know, there was that. You know,
2: but then you do a 180, and it's they're like mercenaries as Atari force, and you have all these different creatures from the different areas, but they work yeah. together so well. And I was like, oh, it's going to be another Atari commercial. And I'm reading it, and I'm like no way man like this is a yeah. really cool story
3: well by that point atari had collapsed for the most part you know they were in the process of collapsing and there there um uh, uh there was some value to their name mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't there wasn't much right. and jeanette khan wanted to do a new, wanted to well well they were still part of the warner brothers uh uh, corporate, corporate uh, uh, synergy. Mm. She wanted to do something using the name, figuring there were at least some uh, marketability there. Mm. <laughs> and and we were going to work uh, we got together with uh, with Jose uh, Garcia Lopez as the artist on the book and I flew into New York and this is the absolute truth. I was sick. I, I was I I I was going to be really I, I had come down with a really bad cold so I took every single cold medication that I could find and I was out of my mind for the meetings on this book and we we just went went for it you know <laughs> it the most Deranged creative period I'd ever had in my life, you know. Because I like, yeah, let's. How about a sexy insect <laughs> like this, you know? And and there's a giant, big giant guy who's only got the mind of a baby, and it's like we just and Jose's is going yes, yes, you know. And we're the two of us are just brainstorming this stuff, and Jeanette's going yes, this sounds great. And uh, Andy Helfer, who was the editor, was like, how will we make this work, you know? <laughs> And, and we just threw it all together, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, it was just, it was purely by it was pure SF as I wanted to write SF. You know, just speculative, wild, futuristic, uh, alien worlds—all these crazy things that uh, had no basis in anything that DC was doing. Right. So it was very freeing.
2: Let's say, how important is that for you? creatively to be able to do a book like that, where there's no, you don't have to follow any back history or anything like that. It's just you, these are your ideas. This is what you want to create. Go for it.
3: Well, it's very, it's very important. There's two kinds of writing I love to do. One is to to, to play in somebody else's uh, sandbox, you know, and 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 play with the toys they've left behind. Yeah. Uh, and I love that, you know, but the other is to sort of build my own sandcastles. Uh, you know, and to have have the the ability to uh, just make make shit up, you know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, sometimes it's been uh, sometimes I've been successful with that, and sometimes I haven't. You know, I mean, I, I did a lot of DC specials, and some of them were revivals. A couple of them were were attempts at creating new characters out of using old character names, mm-hmm. um, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't. But the, but the notion was always to try to create something. Uh, that stood on its own, you know, so that I wouldn't have to, as I say, I love playing with other people's toys, but I also don't want to have to sometimes uh, uh, fit my stories into somebody else's continuity. Uh, I got that opportunity with Atari Force, with Firestorm, Mm -hmm. um, to to basically have the, the, the chance to create your own many universes delightful that's all um, um.
1: that seemed like uh, such an amazing opportunity to have atari force and i know the confluence of cough medicine and pure creativity <laughs> um because i mean arrangement. yes <laughs> yeah you, you were starting from I mean, it was a blank slate, but not really. I mean, there was something yes. there, right? Which is well, almost kept, a little a better than of... having a complete blank slate.
3: Yeah, we, we were able to keep, uh, we kept like an element or two so that there was some continuity to it. You know, like the Martin, uh, forget what his, what his name was, but, but they, there was a sense that there was an Atari force, And now we're going to take it into this other direction. Because it was really no, nobody really cared, you know, that the, the, the <laughs> right. in terms of the, there were, there were no established readers of that material, right? Uh, as far yeah. as we knew, n- n- nobody who'd picked up those original Atari pamphlets were going to be buying the Atari Force comic. Yeah. So it was a, a, a clean slate, you know, and all we had to do was backfill enough to make it feel like there was a history you know, to the, to, to that world. Uh, yeah, it was wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity. And, uh, I really wish somebody would, I would heard at one point that dark horse had gotten the rights to reprint it. And, uh, I keep hearing that, that, that at some point they're going to do an omnibus of it. Wow. Nothing has happened, you know, and I keep waiting and waiting, you know, cause I want people to people today to see what Jose had done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, in a lot of ways that's uh, that and cinder and ash are his best work uh and it's just shameful to me that there's so few people who have seen uh those two two projects
1: let's see what we can do to uh get the word out with <laughs> this conversation <Yes. laughs> um i'm going to take you 180 um back into the toy box paradigm as as it were um, Uh, again sort of back in the 70s but you know I was reading a a lot of your biography and um, you did a lot of sort of switching back and forth between DC and Marvel at times and even at times I think particularly in the late 70s you were working at both companies simultaneously you had books coming out from both uh, companies and I, I wanted to know like was that in any way confusing? Did you feel like you had to put on a hat when you were writing uh, a
3: Marvel book versus, and then
1: take that off, put a different hat on for the DC <laughs> book?
3: Well, it, in that particular case, uh, I was—I had left DC to become editor in chief at Marvel uh, and that didn't work out you know, <laughs> rather spectacularly. Um, but I still was at Marvel for. I had intended to, when when it didn't work out. I thought, well, I'll just go back to DC, where they were offering me editorial work, and I could do that. But Marvel made me an offer to stay, and while we were negotiating contracts, I was doing those those stories for them. At that point, you know, I was. I think I worked for them for another six or seven months, um, and things the contract talks collapsed. That's why there was an overlap where, you know, there was some material of mine still coming out from D.C. from previous work and then some Marvel work that came out after I started up again at D.C. I never actually was writing for both companies at the same time Um, in terms of uh, putting on different mental hats. When I was working for D.C., I was trying to write Marvel style books uh, using using in the D.C. Universe and in the DC uh, production scheme, which made things a little difficult. Uh, DC was not accustomed to doing uh, Marvel-style books in terms of, uh, you know, outlines with artists uh, drawing from the outlines and then doing uh, dialogue afterwards. So in some cases, I was writing full scripts. In other cases, I was working with an artist uh, and, and dialoguing after. And then there were additional issues around production uh, because one thing which fans may not recognize, but creators would have recognized at the time was that, and this seems so, so, so uh, inside baseball, but the Marvel lettering uh, size was just a fraction smaller than the DC default lettering size, which meant that the Marvel books could have more dialogue and copy than the DC books, Hmm. which we used at Marvel to make, you know, make them more conversational, more uh, emotional and so on. So when I came over to DC, I fought a battle for like the, the year that I was there to try to get production to reduce the size of the lettering. Uh, and eventually succeeded on some of my books to get the lettering a little bit smaller so that I could put in more text and copy, which today, of course, we try to do much less <laughs> text, but right. back then the goal was more text, uh, but that was an inside baseball thing. So that constrained some of the ways that I wrote, you know, for DC, uh, by the time I came back to DC, it, after my six or eight months at Marvel, uh, things had changed, production had loosened up, and I was able to work in a more uh, uh, comfortable fashion. And the kinds of stories that I wanted to write were the kinds of stories that they wanted me to write uh, so we didn't have any real conflicts. you know I was not I didn't have to worry about boxing myself into a to a DC mentality hmm. by that point because Jeanette Prawn had t- come in and everything was up in the air. Creatively. Uh, okay.
1: And so you didn't find maybe, or at least at that point, sort of these, we've heard sort of recurring for folks that have been at both companies and sometimes within the span of a few years, uh, very sort of blatant cultural differences, right? Uh, DC being buttoned up versus Marvel being a little bit looser, those sort of things.
3: There there definitely were cultural differences. Um, When I first came over to DC, they, they came back to D.C. because I, I had started at D.C. But in 75 or so, when I came over uh, the first time, uh, none of the other editors knew what to make of me. Because <laughs> I mean, for one thing, I was a kid. I was like 21, uh, 22. Uh, and for another, you know, I had a very different approach to working with creators than they did. Uh, and it was very strange for them, you know, because they were all middle aged guys you know who uh you know were tied to work and uh you know uh, uh what they basically basically looked like the madman offices you know um from uh, uh the mid-60s uh, but that culture started to break down when jeanette came in because she was such a breath of fresh air uh and and broke so many of the, the old assumptions, you know, I mean, for one thing, she was a woman and there had never been a woman in charge at DC. Uh, And there still isn't, I mean, there is now, you know, at Marvel, but it's, it's been a long time uh, for women to have the kind of uh, power that Jeanette had had in the mid seventies at DC. Uh, And she, her very presence basically opened up the atmosphere there, you know, of what was possible and what wasn't possible. Um, but there was, you know, there were cultural differences, but a lot of that was, I think also, uh, you know, sour grapes f- from different creators who felt badly, you know, treated at one company and went over to the other company and would say, Oh, they, you know, they, They're assholes over there. They don't know what they're doing, you know, and uh, I was one of those bitter great guys, you know, at one point too. So uh, it's, I would take it with a grain of salt, you know, uh, both companies tried really hard, I think, to be, at least during the period that I was familiar with them, you know, which only goes up through the uh, early nineties to try to be creative homes for people, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to try to give them, you know, enough space to, to do their best work. There was periods at Marvel where they got too anal retentive. And then there were periods at DC where they got too uh, corporate, but mostly they were trying, both companies were trying to bring out the best and in, in creators. Sure.
2: Now one, uh, character that you worked on at DC that's had quite the evolution would be Jason Todd. Um, <laughs> Going into it, what what did you think Batman needed in a Robin for him to to be successful? If you had to put together a Robin, what are some of the characteristics you felt need to be in him?
3: Right. Um, well, I was very old school about it. You know, I mean, I I, my, I think people attach the, get attached to the character as they to the different characters that they they read. Uh when they from the from the version that they first discover, uh, so you know I grew up with Batman and Robin, uh, reading the uh, the annuals uh, in the late fifties, early sixties that featured the, uh, uh, the the Bill Finger Dick Sprang type Batman Robin stories of uh, the late forties and mid uh, early to mid fifties. Uh, so I liked that kind of um, over the top Batman. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, I really enjoyed Denny O'Neill's take on Batman. And there was a period where Denny was still using Robin. And, um, you know, that was also appealing to me. And then, as I say, I'm a Gardner Fox fan and that particular era of Batman which was adapted very faithfully by the Batman TV show, which I, which is hard, you know, for me as a, as a fan of Batman to, have, to acknowledge because I hated that show <laughs> when it was on <laughs> because I thought they were making fun of my comics, you know, right. but now looking back at it, I go, oh, yeah, they're just basically adapting the comics completely authentically. Uh, <clears throat> but I liked the idea of Batman with a, young kid sidekick as a uh a way for young readers to feel uh uh embraced by the character mm-hmm. and by the by by the the stories. Uh Batman was to me that relationship the father son kind of uh relationship was important to me as a kid and that's what I wanted to replicate. So when I brought, when I created Jason Todd, I was very deliberately trying to recreate Dick Grayson, but the Dick Grayson of uh, the 1950s, you know, or, or the early 50s, you know, the 10-year-old, 12-year-old, uh, wide-eyed, uh, 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 immature kid who had a tragic backstory and who needed parental guidance. So that was that was the Jason Todd that I uh, that I wanted to see, uh, and of course he's got he went through so many changes as a result of all the different reboots mm-hmm. that I have, I, you know, <laughs> who the hell knows what he is. <laughs> uh, he's a very tra- traumatized character now. And, uh, you know, that that makes him more interesting. I think Jason Todd as he is now is a much more interesting character than he would have been, you know, if, the, if a straight line development had, had gone from uh, the character I invented. Right. Uh, or co-invented with uh, don Newton. so it's hard to say where where he would have ended up you know uh in, in from that initial concept probably boringly you know would have, <laughs> you know eventually they would have just smothered him rather than you know killed him <laughs> off <you know. laughs> or he would have gone off to college you know or something else and <laughs> just been written out of the book
1: an upstate and retired
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i, I want to ask you
2: because i've asked a couple of the writer, uh, writers this. Um, and you spoke, as, and I could tell you, you truly care about Batman or with any character. Um, when he goes through, I mean, you have the death of Jason Todd and then you had the dark night where he becomes grizzled and, you know, a lot more darker. Yeah. Do you think characters need to go through that kind of evolution, that dark evolution in order to grow?
3: Um, not really. I mean, I think that that's just another interpretation of the character. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, there's a reason we keep rebooting Batman back to his origins. Right. You know, we keep redoing stories that are set in the first year or second year. Yeah. Um, just like, like when uh, Marvel, uh, when the MCU got a chance to, uh, and even Sony, when they were, when they're doing Spider-Man, they're not doing Peter Parker, 30 year old, uh, graduate of uh empire university they're doing high school peter parker because that's peter parker uh, and batman grizzled batman yeah that's just it's become a trope now uh i mean to me that's that was a great one-off story and should have been a great one-off story and stayed a great one-off story uh but that's not to say that the other that, that versions that have embraced that over the years have been bad i mean i I think that's that's a good way to go, you know, for, for certain certain tales. But we do keep going back and rebooting the character back to uh, his less damaged self, you know, uh, where he is still a haunted man, you know, trying to deal with uh, the 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 damage of losing his parents as a child uh, and the responsibility that he now feels to never let someone else go through that um that is always going to be his basis motive his modus operandi uh and the basis for his character but he doesn't have to be as dark and cynical as he has been at some stages you know where he's ultimately i mean there are periods where he's been so paranoid that uh you know it, it it's it, he's he's clearly dysfunctional as a, as a as a human being, which is not a very heroic state, right. in my view. I mean, as I, as I say, one of the things that I like is characters that experience failure or feel, experience trauma and rise through it through to redemption. Um, Batman is uh, as when he when you see Batman, the, the paranoid Batman, you know, the Batman of Brother Eye, let's say. Uh, what you're looking at there is an unredeemed Batman. Mm-hmm. You're, you're looking at a broken man who is no longer a, a hero. He's, he's a kind of a pathetic figure and that's not a character I'm particularly interested in, <laughs> in supporting. I much prefer the, the hopeful Bruce Wayne who's trying to redeem uh, Gotham city yeah. and, you know, becomes Batman, you know, at, at least in part because he thinks that Gotham city can be saved and, yes. uh, so sure. great
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's a super interesting take i think yeah to your point that uh some people maybe a majority of people for the the years directly after it took the dark knight returns as gospel well this yeah. is this is batman now and so we all have to instead of fitting into the 60s silly mold now we all have to fit into this mold and then every you know people i think shed that eventually and you know you keep rediscovering mm-hmm. and reinventing. Um, so I'm glad that's that's finally happening again. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit. You've done a decent amount of uh work with uh screenwriting as well as uh teleplays. Um uh, I wonder if you could tell us about, you know, what you find um different than than comic writing and what you enjoy about that that style of writing versus comics. Um and if you feel co- more comfortable in one versus the other.
3: Well, I think creatively, comics offers much more uh, as a creator, uh, simply because your the stakes are a lot lower. (laughs) There's that, and you're also working with a lot fewer people whose egos can get hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That said, uh, there's a lot of similarities between uh, uh, TV, in particular, which is where most of my career was spent. Even though Roy Thomas and I wrote. eight screenplays together, I think, uh, that we sold, which was, which was pretty good. Uh, and, uh, you know, two, two of which got produced. So we had a pretty good batting average for, for Hollywood, uh, uh, screenwriting, but it's such a high stakes field that there's not a lot of room for an individual expression and especially in t- in film. Uh, where the director is, the, is the, the the most important voice in the room, and and probably should be because they're the ones who are uh, managing the uh, the whole operation, and the, their names are the ones that are going to be they're the ones who are going to take the hit. Um, in television, writers have much more authority, and it's their their roles are much closer to the writer editor uh, uh, role that that existed in comics in the the seventies. Uh, And Stan's role at uh, at Marvel in the '60s. Uh, In terms of the similarities, it's surprisingly similar in that there's a there's a formula to a good comic story, and there's a formula to the kind of TV that I was writing in uh, up until the mid uh, 2000s. Nowadays, I think there's even more of a uh, similarity between TV and comics because they're both become ser- they're both serialized mediums. Uh, you know, your, your average TV show now, uh, outside of network, is uh, a serial show. It goes for like ten episodes, uh, six episodes if it's a British show. Um, <laughs> Uh, 13, if it's a, you know, a, a cable show. Uh, And that format allows you to develop a story and character in ways that are similar to how you can develop them in comics. Mm -hmm. You know, the average comic now has got a five to six issue uh, arc for an individual serialized story because you're going to, because of the technical requirements of uh, putting out the trades Uh, and that you know, is similar to a season of comics. I mean, a season of TV, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess that that's that's a good thing creatively. I, I think uh, <sighs> my own experience writing television was, uh, I mean, I did it. I did it. It's say about better than 60 to 70 percent for the money <laughs> <laughs> I that. Be- because honestly as a writer you know you have uh you're you're doing you're you're, you're i how did i describe i described it to my uh, my producer my showrunner on uh law and order criminal intent that i saw my job as getting yardage uh, you know like it, <laughs> that we were playing football uh, I was simply moving the ball down the field. You know, right. <laughs> I, I was not going to get a touchdown every uh, every <laughs> time I I worked on a script. I was trying to just move that ball down the field, and you know that's the truth. You're part of a team, and whatever impact you have is going to be more the result of uh, the coach, uh, the team that you're, the, the other players on the team, uh, the the overall game plan the strength of the uh the, the, the fan base supporting you all of that your role is limited you know and uh some writers are able to rise above that you know uh, i was always going to be a number two guy you know i never had the ambition to be a uh, a showrunner per se although i did do it uh, on a show um i just don't want that responsibility you know and i i don't have the the mindset for it um but I really, I do like, you know, uh, carrying the ball, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed doing that. So, um, to that extent, you know, the, I, I was sort of a, you know, a utility player and, uh, you know, got, got, some got close to the end zone sometimes and actually, uh, you know, hit brought it across the, to to score a few times. And that's pretty good average. (laughs) It
1: seemed like a lot of the shows you worked on uh, were, were more episodic in nature anyway. And so they, therefore, your metaphor kind of works uh, in terms of, you know, bringing the ball along.
3: (laughs) I was, I was lucky. And I was lucky to come in at a time when network television was still the primary Uh, Marketplace, and uh, I worked on a a, a number of uh, shows that were were perfectly designed for you know one and out. You know, uh, you watch an episode, you don't have to watch another one. Uh, Hopefully, you will. (laughs) This is the whole (laughs) point. But but they were they were formulaic, and uh, you know they were designed to 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 give you a McMeal. You know, know, this was your Mac meal. Yeah, (laughs) that's what they were. Uh, These days, you know, you get full course dinners, and that's a that's a much more complex, complex, and uh, a much higher set of standards in in certain ways. Even though the people doing it are getting paid substantially less than people were being paid when I was doing it, uh, which is a a real crime uh, because the the demands of doing a ten episode uh, serial show. Uh, for a a studio like Netflix are in a lot of ways much higher than doing a network show was when I was doing Matlock or Father Dowling or Law and Order. Um, You know, the standards, uh, production standards are higher. Uh, The demands for story are are greater. Uh, it's, It's just, and they're getting paid like a third. Yeah. you know, what, yeah. what, what, what I was being paid and they, and they have no residuals. Like I, I'm basically the, one of the reasons I was able to retire 15 years ago is because I have residuals, you know, and a, and a pension, you know, and it, they don't have any of that. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Wow.
1: It's, it's certainly a bizarre time in a uh, screen, uh screen type <laughs> entertainment yes. in the world, in the world. Yes. Of, and uh, the world in general company.
2: as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time. And I just have one last question. And that sure. is, you know, we look at you and, and your creativity and we're in awe a lot of the times as, as comic fans. I'm wondering where in your career were you always confident in your writing ability or did it, was there a point in your career where you said, you know what, I'm, I'm confident with the voice that I have. I know I can do this. And, you know, I'm in the zone.
3: I, I think there were only two periods in my career where I felt like I knew what I was doing. One was at the beginning when I really didn't know. <laughs> I was youthful exuberance. I, I, I was very confident, uh, <laughs> and I'd say that the, that the work that I've done in the last uh, fifteen years or so, when I when I've dabbled back in, you know, I've been fairly confident. Uh, although I can't say it's gotten any easier. Uh and in many ways it's hard, it's harder for me now uh to, to write than it than it was when I was younger. Uh because now I know <laughs> what I can and can't do. And uh I'm more aware of my my uh w- w- what my skill set is. Mm-hmm. And that can be both you know liberating when it's when it's going well and kind of frustrating when you're you bite bite off something that uh you may not be able to achieve. Um I think I've mostly managed to achieve what I, what I set out to do uh, over my, over my career uh, in certain ways, uh, you know, there, there are periods where I think I, I, I hit it out of the park much more often mm-hmm. than uh, than in other times. Uh, but, you know, I'm a working writer, you know, that's, 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 the, that's the, 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 the game that you're playing, you know, makes sense. Do what you can. <laughs>
1: Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us, Jerry. It's been a real pleasure um, for the folks out there that are listening, watching, um, where can they find you? Are you on social?
3: <laughs> I'm on Twitter. Uh, do not want Twitter. to be found? <laughs> no, no. I'm, I, I always enjoy interacting with fans and I'm on Twitter, uh, Jerry Conway. I'm a blue, I'm, I'm a blue check. <laughs> um, and um other than that, I do dabble occasionally in work here and there. Uh, a lot of my stuff is being republished right now. Uh, and they can certainly find me on uh, DC Infinity and uh, Marvel Unlimited. So, you know, feel free <laughs> to, catch, uh, to catch up.
0: Hey, welcome back. So that was our interview with Jerry Conway. Um, I, I really love this interview. I'm sorry I wasn't able to be a part of it, but you guys, you guys did a great job. Um, I had so many questions that I wish I could have asked him, uh, specifically about his run on JLA, because uh, it was so long. I mean, not many people have been able to be a part of a character for as long as he has.
2: Yeah, he was very open, very honest about um, his work and himself and uh, just an absolute pleasure to talk to. Uh, I, this is probably one of my favorite interviews we've ever done.
1: Yeah, uh me as well enjoyed uh, the heck out of this uh interview he was a great pleasure to talk to had a lot of interesting points uh definitely did not deflect on any of the questions uh we dug into and so um that'll do it for this episode of dollar bin bandits uh we did want to shout out an email we got from a fan uh bob o'neill uh thank you very much for the kind words Um, you know, it means a lot to us to get, you know, such emails and support and uh, reviews and all that kind of stuff. So uh, keep them coming, everybody, and we will keep the interviews coming. So we'll see you next time on Dollar Bin Bandits. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Orrin Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all of the socials at Dollarbin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.